Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Oh my gosh, I have to burp. Cool. Uh. Oh! <laughs> oh my god. Get it all out. Get it out, ladies. Get it out now. <coughs> I'm have... so sorry. <laughs> Anybody have to fart? Do it right now. <laughs> no, no, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> Okay. Just go ahead and leave that in. (laughs) Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. This is season nine, episode seven, and we are so excited for you to join us. Gracie and I have been friends since forever, and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you. All while drinking a nice cup of coffee. Today we'll be discussing the 2020 horror fairy tale flick, Gretel and Hansel, based on German folklore tale, Hansel and Gretel. The film was written by Rob Hayes and Oz Perkins and directed by Oz Perkins, credited as Osgood Perkins. The film stars Sophia Lillis, Alice Krieg, Samuel Leakey, and Jessica DeGau. We are not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this episode and watch it. Are you still here? Okay, then let's get this morning started. Um, so as you all know, or maybe you don't, but if you don't, welcome to the drama of podcast recording. (laughs) (laughs) This is the second time we've uh, recorded this episode, hopefully the last. (laughs) Oh my god. Um, so as you all know, probably from our social media, uh, we recorded this episode. We use a uh, program called Clean Feed, and normally it works pretty well. You know, we are all in separate locations, all using different mics. Uh, And we all have our headphones plugged into our computers. We can hear each other. So we don't really know what our own mics sound like. Um, So uh, I did not triple check uh, our audio before I started editing. And it's a hot mess. So it it sounded (laughs) like absolute garbage. So I apologize. That was my bad. Normally, like when stuff like this happens, Abby and I like hop on, do a quick re-record and we're able to get out the, you know, the second time we've recorded the episode and nobody is none the wiser. But because there's three of us, we all have very different schedules. All three of us have kids. One of us is in school. One of us has a day job. Uh, It's just crazy. So thank you all so much for being patient. Thank you all for listening. And uh, we're going to try to be as natural as possible as if we are (laughs) recording this for the first time (laughs) um but anyway i want to welcome back to the show for a third time technically a fourth time (laughs) kate motherfucking scully say hi kate hi everybody again (laughs) hi okay so for any new listeners to the show kate is a great friend of mine and a frequent guest on the program she previously joined us for our discussions on the movie prevenge and the lighthouse kate welcome back and thanks for being here and helping us write this episode happy to be back thanks for having me awesome okay so abby would you please read us the plot summary yes 
Gretel and Hansel are forced to flee from their home after their mother threatens to kill them for not finding work to help provide for their household. Seeking refuge in the nearby woods, they wander until they become lost and face threats from frightening strangers and the elements of the wild nature they're surrounded by. They are drawn to a house in the middle of the forest that smells of cake, and the starving children are taken in by a creepy but kindly old woman named Holda. She offers them work and a place to stay while teaching Gretel how to tap into her witchy powers. At first, their situation seems lovely, but Gretel suspects that there is something sinister about Holda, and she begins to unravel the mystery about her identity. Will she use her intuition and newly found sense of self and power to overcome Holda and her dark facade? Or will she succumb to Holda's evil plan and hunger for children? Tune in next week for Gretel <laughs> and Hansel. <laughs> it sounds like a like a wrestling drama. <laughs> when you say it that way. Gretel versus Hansel. <laughs> Oh, man. Who will come out on top? <laughs> oh, geez. Oh, boy. Okay, so let's get into the production, shall we? Uh, okay, so in 2018, it was announced that Orion Pictures was producing a film based on the famous fairy tale Hansel and Gretel, and that it would be helmed by Oz Perkins, who had previously directed I Am the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House and The Black Coat's Daughter. Perkins is also the son of Anthony Perkins, who played Norman Bates in Alfred Hitchcock's 1960 film Psycho. Okay, Kate, could you tell us a little bit more about the original Hansel and Gretel story? Abso-freaking-lutely, I can. So Hansel and Gretel, also known as Little Brother and Little Sister, is a German fairy tale first published in 1812 by the Brothers Grimm. It's been argued that the brothers heard the story in 1809 from the family of Wilhelm's friend and future wife, Dorchen Wilde. According to Dr. Emily Zarka, Dorchen grew up in Germany but had French ancestry, which may explain the tale's many similarities to the 17th century French fairy tale Le Petit Pousset by Charles Perrault, with the major diversion between the stories being that Perrault's antagonist is a male giant and Grimm's being a female witch. Mm -hmm. Hansel and Gretel was included in the very first edition of Grimm's fairy tales and was subject to rewrites with each new edition, but there'll be more on that later. Uh, Zarka explains in the 18th and early 19th century, Germany suffered from multiple famines. There was an estimated 40% loss of population in the first decade of the 18th century due to starvation and disease alone. A second famine hit the later part of the century during the time when the Brothers Grimm were alive, so they might have felt or seen the lingering effects of those losses or encountered the elderly during their fo uh, folklore research who lived through those events. Um, Child abandonment and infanticide was not uncommon, and cannibalism was similarly a very stark and extremely frightening reality among those who were hit the hardest during those times. Um, those fears and horrors greatly influenced and molded the German folktales that the Brothers Grimm collected, and these stories were intended as moral and ethical warnings for children as much as a survival guide in a very dangerous world. Hansel and Gretel, along with the comparable tales that succeeded it, all dealt directly with those themes of desperate abandonment and survival, using the forest as tableau for danger, magic, and death. Yes, thank you, Kate. Um, I just want to add that uh, Dr. Emily Zarka also said something about 
um, how it was changed from an ogre to witches because Germany had, uh, I, I'm not sure when, but it was, I think, around the time of the famine, maybe right before that. Maybe you remember mm-hmm. more than I do. Uh, but they had a... Um, I almost said a witch problem. <laughs> Do we have a witch infestation? Oh, no. We're dealing with it right now. <laughs> but they had like their own kind of witch trials happen mm-hmm. around that time. And so I can totally see how the Brothers Grimm, as misogynistic as it is, they changed it from an ogre, like a male ogre to witches, because yeah. that was like in their psyche, basically, like in their in their news i guess you know that there were these witches that they had killed it was much more relatable and present within their world so it was a more appropriate antagonist for their tales totally yeah okay so oz perkins told yahoo entertainment about his version Quote, one of the first things I pitched to the studio was that Gretel was going to be older. It was the most valid version of the narrative for today's audiences, unquote. So that simple change transforms the terrifying bedtime story into an empowering empowering coming-of-age tale, albeit one one that's still all kinds of terrifying, says Ethan Alter. Um, So Perkins also told Yahoo Entertainment that he hopes parents take their age-appropriate kids to the movie, especially since he deliberately crafted it to receive a PG-13 rating. Quote, I wanted this to be something that kids felt was just slightly out of their reach. That's the charm the original Grimm fairy tales had, too. Kids were drawn to them, even as they felt like they were almost too scary, unquote. And according to Alter... There are characters in Gretel and Hansel that tease a wider world. Charles Babalola, who plays the Huntsman, uh, deliberately was intended to echo both Snow White and Red Riding Hood. And Perkins reveals that he filmed additional fairy tale inspired characters that just didn't make the final cut. Quote, the witch had a lover who was the sort of demoness and was related to the huntsman. The idea was to create a world where there are big bad wolves and other enchanted people, not to correlate it to Shrek, but I like worlds like that, unquote. Okay, so this film was released right before COVID-19 hit the world. And um, I guess that was really lucky for them (laughs) because it was in theaters. Uh, It was released on January 31st, 2020, to be exact, with a budget of only $5 million. Gretel and Hansel was a financial success and earned $22.1 million. And that's pretty good for a small film released in January, especially one that's a horror film and that's PG-13. Okay, so the critical response was mixed, though, and the film barely holds a fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes at 64%. According to Chandler Lavick from The Globe and Mail wrote, Everything about Gretel and Hansel is weirder, smarter, and way more cinematic than I'd expected, thanks to some fascinating movie choices made by director Oz Perkins. The reverberations of trauma and how women can come into their power in a world designed to cauterize their hearts are the engines that drive the surprisingly feminist take on a disturbing fairy tale, unquote. And according to film critic Jenny Holtz, quote, in a sea of reboots, sequels, and rerations, Gretel and Hansel 2020 is a refreshingly dark film that feels new and exciting despite the centuries-old story, unquote. And we will get into rewriting fairy tales at the end of this episode. 
So uh, let's talk about the Bechdel test. Yes, it actually passes a few times between the witch and Gretel. And normally I would not count this, but the witch is credited with the name Holda. So even though her name is never said in the film, she does technically have a name. She's not credited as the witch. So it does technically pass the Bechdel test. Okay, so Nancy's dream team test. Was the supporting cast at least 50% women? No, surprisingly. Did a woman write, direct, produce, edit, or shoot the film? Yes, the film was edited by Julia Wong. Was the final girl or main character a person of color? No, there's only one person of color in this film. Were there any openly LGBT plus characters in the film? No, again. Uh, those last two I just thought of right now, that those last two are really disappointing, actually, because it sounds like that they would have passed. Yeah. If Oz Perkins was able to do what he wanted to do with the film, because apparently Holda, right, has a female lover. She's a demoness. Uh, and if she's related to the Huntsman, I assume she is also black. Ah. So we would have had a, like, uh, a representation of, you know, like... We would have had more people of color in the film, and we would have had a a queer relationship with a woman of color in the film. It's just really disappointing, actually, now that I'm thinking about it. <laughs> God damn it. Okay, so let's get into our discussion. We have a lot to talk about. Um, so let's start off with the Mother, Maiden, Crone, and Triangles, The Power of Three. Yes. So one of the oldest archetypes in theologies and mythologies is what's commonly called the triple goddess, which represents the stages of the female cycle, maiden, mother, and crone. Each of these has its unique qualities and strengths, and this movie embodies each of these stages in very different ways. The maiden is coming of age, so the maiden is traditionally a figure of freshness and life and chastity, virginity, innocence, and honor. Basically, everything a patriarchal society would value most in a female figure. Insert dramatic eye roll here. <laughs> the innocence, the tabula rasa embodiment, are often developed as a target for others' corruption and influence, usually male, and molding the maiden into a form of and for their desire or necessity. Traditionally, the maiden can rise or fall depending on the influence of others rather than her own self-development and discovery. In this film, it's Gretel's coming-of-age story. She enters and embodies all the stages of the trinity, maiden, mother, and by the end, the crone, and in her maiden stage, she is not aware of the priorities and desires of others. Her sexuality and gender are objectified and monetized by those she seeks help from. Uh, in an article for Plugged In, reviewer Paul Assay writes, When an old man interviews Gretel early on, it's Austin's it's ostensibly for a housekeeping position, but he asks poignantly and repeatedly whether she's a virgin or not, and there's a subtle, creepy reference to how she would deal with the man's, quote, guests, unquote. But Gretel and Hansel meet with a kindly huntsman who points them in the direction of others of his kind. They're good men, he says, but suggests that Gretel is vulnerable to being seduced or misused by presumably less scrupulous men she might encounter. The, men, the man cautions Gretel of wolves along the way, too, a reference, it would seem, to Little Red Riding Hood fairy tale and what some say are its underlying sexual themes. Mm. Gretel recognizes what others want from her, but 
doesn't compromise her values or sell for it, even if it means losing the security of her home. Right. Thank you so much, Kate. Um, So let's now talk about the mother, the not-so-maternal. The figure of the mother in both this film and the original fairy tale is a complicated one. The mother traditionally represents nurturing, affection, guardianship, creation, and warmth. However, in these tellings, the mother character goes against this archetype. When the Grimm's fairy tales were originally released, stories were often rewritten or tweaked with the reprints. Hansel and Gretel was not an exception to alterations, as we talked about earlier. Uh, It underwent several changes. According to the Wikipedia page dedicated to the original tale, quote, it became more Christian in tone, shifting the blame for, uh, for abandonment from a mother to a stepmother associated with the witch. Even their final version in the seventh edition, which came out in 1857, remains unclear about about her role, for it refers to the woodcutter's wife twice as the mother and once as the stepmother. And the mother figure married to the father, who was a symbol of stability, safety, and love, is in contrast cold, fickle, conditional, and resentful to the children. Being the first to sacrifice their lives for their own survival, she sees the children as competition for food, security, and even the love of the father figure, and wants to cut them off to sustain herself, unquote. Um, And according to folklorist Jack Zipes, the fairy tale celebrates the symbolic order of the patriarchal home, seen as a haven protected from the dangerous characters that threaten the lives of children outside, while it systematically degenerates the adult female characters, which are seemingly intertwined between each other. Zipes also argues that the importance of the tale in the European oral and literary tradition may be explained by the theme of child abandonment and abuse. And like Kate mentioned earlier, due to famines and lack of birth control, it was common in medieval Europe to abandon unwanted children in front of churches or in the forest. The death of the mother during childbirth sometimes led to tensions after remarriage, and Zipes proposes that it may have played a role in the emergence of the motif of the hostile stepmother, unquote. And I think I remember in uh, that same video that Kate and I watched uh, for PBS called Monstrum, uh, Dr. Emily Zarka talks about how it was actually illegal for women to not say that they were pregnant. Mm -hmm. So a lot of women would carry the child to term, give birth, and then abandon them. Oh, yeah, so I think yeah. that's where I think that's where the Grimm brothers also got the idea of vilifying mothers. Mm-hmm. So of course, it's a very complicated thing to abandon your child, obviously. But uh, I think that that's a really interesting little tidbit to where they might have gotten the um, horrible mother trope, basically from. Yeah. Yeah. So in the film, uh, the mother is cold to the children, is as cold to the children as she is in the original fairy tale, quick to remind Gretel of the dog-eat-dog world out there and that they must take what they can get, however they can get it. After the creepy old man asks Gretel about her virginity for his guest's interests, Gretel's mother is furious that Gretel didn't make more of an effort to get the job. Quote, he didn't need a housekeeper, Gretel tells her mom. Insinuation, clear if not clearly, spelled out. 
to Gretel's mother, it didn't matter if the dude was a creep or not, that Gretel didn't want to be objectified. It was work, it was a resource, and passing that over for her own self-respect was an inexcusable and irredeemable flaw. Mm. Not having the mother figure to protect and comfort the Gretel of the film steps into that role and enters the second stage of her journey. According to the article for Plugged In, quote, for most of the movie, Gretel's a pretty good big sister under the most trying of conditions. When Hansel and Gretel's mom forces them to leave, Gretel, though she's only 16, becomes a surrogate mother of sorts. And a pretty decent one. And even if her brother can be a pain, and even though she does <laughs> complain at times that she has to share everything with him, Gretel doesn't want her brother to get eaten. Unquote. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> Alright, so now we come to the crone aspect of the story, and which witch is which? So, finally we have the crone, which is the final stage of the female life cycle. She is a figure of aged wisdom, freedom, and personal power. It's no coincidence that crones are often synonymous with hags or witches, elderly, unsightly, singular female fixtures wielding great and terrible unearthly powers away from the stable safeties of civilization. These figures are feared as well as revered because the crone has seen what life has to offer and is stronger, wiser, and even more dangerous for it. In the article Fire and Fur, The Many Guises of the Grimm's Fairy Tale Witches by Sarah Clito and Brittany Warman, they write, The witch of Hansel and Gretel is undeniably a monster. She is an incarnation of uncontrollable hunger in a world where starvation was an all-too-real possibility. While she is beyond redemption, <laughs> see cannibalism, <laughs> we do want to note that monster does not have to mean evil. Monstrousness is frequently attributed to anyone who challenges social order or ruptures the fabric of the expected. A witch who is deemed to be monstrous may indeed be violent or cruel, but she may just as easily be kind or neutral. Monstrosity is often not about the actions or character of the one deemed to be monstrous, but about the way that others perceive her. So when we are finally introduced to Holda, the witch of the woods that takes the children in and fosters them, Gretel has a lot on her figurative sh shoulders. She's trying to be the mother to Hansel that they never had with the experience of a girl not yet a woman. She is hungry for guidance, knowledge, and self-sustainability. Hansel is openly eager for the security of Holda's home, hearth, and generosity, while Gretel remains wary and suspicious. Despite her reservations, Gretel needs someone to give her purpose, support, and affection that she had not received before. It's in this home and under Holda's guidance that Gretel develops into the woman she's destined to be. According to the article for Plugged In, Gretel has her period at the old woman's house. We see her looking underneath her bedsheets, and she goes to the river to wash the menstrual blood out of her clothes. Gretel is literally becoming a woman in this place of magic and knowledge. Her body, mind, and abilities are developing when given the opportunity and encouragement to, and Holda understands the power and potential in that. 
Awesome. Thank you so much, Abby. Okay, so I want to also bring up this essay called Symbolism in Gretel and Hansel, The Divine Female and the Number Three by Don Kurtigich. Okay, so they say it was shot at 155 aspect ratio, almost as though the cinematographer decided to follow the block of three photography principle and never strayed from it, unquote. So that's pretty cool. Uh, And they also say three is the number of magic, the trinity of mysticism and Gnosticism. In the approximate number of, it is also the approximate number of pi, and my favorite, it is the number of the three fates, the maiden, the mother, and the crone, also relevant to this film, like we mentioned earlier. The film follows Gretel on her journey from girl to woman. And Kurtigich continues and says, From the triangles scattered throughout the film to the three main characters, threes are everywhere. When Gretel looks into the witch's house, she does so through a tiny triangular window that from the other side looks strikingly like the Eye of Providence, which is a symbol used to illustrate God watching over all of humanity. Intriguingly, there, when there is danger in the film, it is often accompanied by a square or a rectangle and the color red. It is also interesting to note that the shape of the door of the house where they started and where Hansel ends is a circle, perhaps to symbolize the fact that Hansel has come full circle, unquote. (laughs) Yeah, so I really love this essay. Definitely check it out. It's in the show notes. Um, But I also have a book here. It's called The Woman's Dictionary of Symbols and Sacred Objects. And it is by author Barbara G. Walker. So I'm sorry, you're going to hear me turning pages because my (laughs) mic is super sensitive. Um, So it it says here about triangles that um, as the four-way designs of squares and crosses usually represented the male principle, so the three-way design of the triangle and its many relatives usually represented the female principle. So squares represent masculinity, Hmm. you know, historically. Um, So that's funny that Kurtigich says that whenever there's danger, it's accompanied by a square of some sort. Huh. Yeah. So I thought that that was kind of an interesting thing. Um, Walker also says in her book, it seems likely that the triangle became a common symbol for the woman, largely because it was originally a symbol for goddess and many of the objects associated with her. Cakes for religious festivals were often baked in triangular form. Hmm. The Jewish tradition of triangular, um, I'm going to say this wrong, Hamantaschen, oh my gosh, I'm saying this so wrong. I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, please, like, grill me on social media. Um, this triangular-shaped cake was actually came from Egyptian culture, and the Jewish uh, adapted it. Whoa. Um, even in the 20th century, Scottish country folk baked triangular cakes for our favorite holiday, Halloween or Samhain, calling the women who baked the cakes the brides. Huh. Yes. Wow. After a reign of one year, the bride uh, would, like, the next year would become technically the crone. So, like, women who would bake it on Halloween, the next year they would be initiated into be becoming a crone, basically. That's well, true. I mean, in traditional, you know, fairy tales and perception of crone, um, it's really kind of an age, 
aged wisdom, as was mentioned before, you know, like right. you're, you're knowledgeable, you're older, you're wiser for it. Um, I mean, in, in Hollywood, any actress over 30 is a crone. So it's oh. difficult to gauge. <laughs> I'm not oh. saying it's right. I'm just saying that's how it goes. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's really the idea of, you know, you're, you're older, you're wiser, you've been through things, you, you understand it and you pass on that knowledge to the beginning again. You know, that's why it's, you know, uh, it's not a circle, it's a, it's a triangle, but like, it's, it's the, the end point where you can pass on that knowledge to the maiden and the, it all starts again, you know? Now I want to make triangle cakes every Halloween. <laughs> I mean, um, let's like, do it. N- Never gonna say no to cake, so <laughs> <laughs> triangle shaped or otherwise. Yes, exactly. Okay, so let's get into the devouring mother and female monstrosity. So I have another book here um, by Jude Ellison Sadie Doyle, and it is called Dead Blondes and Bad Mothers Monstrosity, Patriarchy, and the Fear of Female Power. It's a great book. Everyone needs to read it right now. Pause this episode and read the whole thing. (laughs) Okay, so Doyle says, despite all the permutations and variations of the witch in our culture, a few features remain constant. The first is the part we're taught as children. The horrible truth, which is eat babies. Oh. Yes. um, The relationship, but the relationship between witches and children seems too primal to be a mere guilt trip. The witch, hard-edged, selfish, cunning, cruel, sexually voracious, and perverse, is distinctly an unmaternal woman. Quote-unquote, good women sacrifice themselves for children. The witch sacrifices children for herself. When they wouldn't get unbaptized babies, Murray says, uh, Margaret Murray, that is, witches killed their own children, which is what happens in this film. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not for nothing that the witch is so frequently portrayed as elderly. Either she's never had children or all of her children have grown up and left home or, you know, she's eaten them. But either way, (laughs) she is beyond the work of mothering. She doesn't share that concern with other quote unquote normal women. And Doyle also says the witch as devourer of children is also the woman who ends pregnancies or prevents them. She is the midwife delivering babies without a man's oversight or assistance and a woman with forbidden knowledge and dangerous skills. So yeah, (laughs) that is, uh, I mean, that describes Holda. In this film, basically. So Oz Perkins told Yahoo Entertainment that he thought it would be interesting to explore this particular archetype of the devouring mother, saying, quote, What's compelling to me is the devouring mother dynamic, the idea of a mother who is equally creative and destructive. That's something that Alice Krieg and I really wanted to make sure existed at all times. The witch really loves and respects Gretel as much as she wants to destroy her. So what exactly is the devouring mother? How does this relate to Holda or even the real mother in A Gretel and Hansel? Well, according to knowyourarchetypes.com, perhaps the best way to sum up the devouring mother archetype is the words of American author and famous writer on archetypes, Carolyn Miss, who says, quote, the devouring mother consumes her children psychologically and emotionally and often instills in them feelings of guilt at leaving her or becoming independent. Whilst dependents rely greatly on her for their needs, just as she desires, she relies equally or even more so on them for her own control 
controlling and emotional needs, unquote. And according to Don Kurtigich, quote, Throughout the film, the colors pink and red, blood and girlhood, are used to indicate danger. The girl in the pink hat, the pink smoke turning red, and the pink bindings holding Gretel down. Again, the symbolism is intriguing. A reference for growing from girlhood to womanhood? Red is the color of danger, and it is used to the effect... In the, it is used to that effect in the film as well, from the abandonment of the children's mother to the final reveal of the witch devouring her own children. The film is a commentary on what being a woman is, percolated with the colors red and pink. Where both are used to illustrate danger, it seems obvious that this is a film about the raw power and fear of womanhood. Even the hallucinogenic mushrooms the children consume are vividly red and eventually lead them to the witch in the woods. In the end, both Gretel and the witch, Holda, have to make sacrifices. Eat your children or be the caretaker for your brother. Gretel sends Hansel away with a part of herself freely given, turning sacrifice into a gift that's really great mm-hmm. yeah well this is i mean this film is so good i don't care what anybody says about it <laughs> <laughs> okay so let's talk about toxic masculinity and the complacent femme yes so ethan alter of yahoo wrote that the main lesson holda seeks to teach gretel is that she alone has the power to shape her future not any authority figure or for that matter her younger brother in one scene, the, which warns her that as Hansel grows up, or grows older, uh, he'll first come to fear his sister and then hate her. A pointed reference to say to the way that toxic masculinity can take root in young minds. Holda sees Hansel a long socio-historical trend of women who stand apart in the power or capability being feared because men feel like this capability is taking something away from them or posing a threat to their comfort and convention. You're a victim to others if you don't learn how to hold your own in this world. Uh, It's just another complacent femme to the wills of dangerous and double standard world. However, if you have the capability and the power to hold your own, to stand apart and against the standard, you're clearly unacceptable and must either fall into line with the rest of your ilk or be destroyed entirely. It's a very damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of scenario. Mm -hmm. Mm, Yeah. And I can't remember what episode it was when we talked about this. I think it may have been for Bit. Um, But we had mentioned that this was kind of an archaic way of looking at men and this... Mm -hmm. That this particular opinion, it's not necessarily wrong, but it does have harmful effects on both men and women. Um, I mean, because feminism is about equality. And much like Bit's main character, Gretel decides that she doesn't have to choose a side necessarily. Like, she's neither good or evil. She just becomes fair. Right. she teaches her brother the best lesson that she possibly could have, and that was that he has to go his own way and figure out his own goddamn life <laughs> so that <laughs> she could, like, figure out hers. And, like, Gretel is not a mother, and I think that she realizes that just because she's a young woman, it doesn't inherently mean that she's supposed to have maternal instincts. Like, she kind of has to let that part of herself go because in the end it will only harm her and her brother. Exactly. She's she's very free to choose her own path, but is conscious of the effect in the world, despite Holda's disregard for that ripple effect. 
Um, Perkins says in his interview with Alter, I tried to create a world in which Gretel's power was assumed to be nothing. The reality she grows up in is that young women are disposable and should expect the least of everything. But when she arrives at the witch's house, she learns that's upside down. Holda is the most powerful creature by far, and she doesn't have time for the patriarchy. She doesn't have time for it. It doesn't factor <laughs> into how she lives, and that's what she's trying to impart into Gretel. She don't need no man. So... <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Yeah. So that uh, societal complacency and demonization of the exceptional feminine is not an uncommon theme within fairy tales in general. Um, Maddie Crumb of the Huffington Post writes, Happily Ever After often involves a man saving a helpless woman. That Disney princesses and their grim-penned counterparts are tame and silent compared with their princely other halves. That the stories embrace violence, but never mention the more feminine grittiness of pregnancy or sex. Violence against women is illustrated as a harsh fact of life, whereas brutalities against men require logical justification. When they aren't the victims of violent crimes or acts of nature, the women in grim stories while away their time silently. In the story Hansel and Gretel, Hansel, Hansel spokes, uh, speaks more often and for longer than his sister, and the first phrase he utters to her just happens to be, Quiet, Gretel. This explicit shushing. <laughs> Shut it, where, Gretel. <laughs> where do you get off? Seriously. <laughs> Shut it, Gretel. No one wants to hear it. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this explicit shushing is common thread throughout Grimm's take on folk folklore. Spells of silence are cast on women more than they are on men, and the characters most valued by male suitors are those who speak infrequently or not at all. Um, women in Grimm's fairy tales have fewer lines of dialogue, especially declarative, confident sentences, than their male counterparts. Uh, well, something that I really like about this film is that there is a power in silence and secrecy. So it kind of, like, turns that on its head a little bit. Like, Holda gives Gretel just enough information to entice her and awaken her own secrets within her. And it has a lot more to do with feeling and intuition, which women in fairy tales are often taught not to trust. And instead of this being a cautionary tale for women who partake in witchcraft or, like, tapping into their own mystical power... It encourages the female characters to seek their truth. One has a very dark truth, and the other has a lighter one. And that is very frightening for Hansel, who has a very skewed view of his sister's role. Hmm. Like, he, he thinks that she is meant to always be with him, that she'll be there to care for him and play the mother role, because that's what women do, right? Like, <laughs> uh, Yeah, meanwhile, he is... A literal child <laughs> tries to find his place in the world, and he is carefree and, like, spending his days honing his axe skills while completely oblivious to his sister's own power, or the fact that Holda is literally fattening him up to eat him. <laughs> yeah. He... He's greedy, but it's because he hasn't learned how not to rely on Gretel yet. Absolutely. And and Hensel is a very linear and uncomplicated character for the most part. He's living in a bubble of very unquestioning security about his place in the world until Gretel begins to question hers. Mm -hmm. It's soon she has ideas and thinking, the audacity, <laughs> the horror. It's just... <laughs> Yeah, 
just it's not until her realization that he begins you know he begins to take note and be like oh oh okay like he his bubble essentially broadens and, and eventually bursts yeah. um crumb also goes on to write if fairy tales do so much to oppress women and distort their experiences then why were women sharing them preserving the warped morality at their center it's a hairy question and one that must factor in a myriad of considerations like internalized misogyny and a desire on the part of the tellers to captivate their audiences rather than scare them off with challenging new ideas a popular theory is that Grimm's collection isn't a faithful rendering of the original women's stories. Unaware of their own masculine influence, they tweak the tales, sometimes subtly, sometimes dramatically, transforming rich reflections of real women's experiences into more flat, silencing stories. Mm-hmm. So, okay, here's what's funny about this, though. Like, the film has revamped this story and given it a new modern light, but... The witch still represents this old ideology, like, of kind of internalized misogyny about motherhood and children and men and families and etc. And Gretel has become the character that women always should have been. Like, she's independent, able to make her own decisions, self-reliant, confident. However, the story focuses on the female perspective in both old and new ways. So it's like the story has been cleansed. (laughs) (laughs) It's presented in a way that honors both the grim fairy tale and these emerging ideas and perspectives of women. So I really like that, actually. Yeah, it's it's the evolution of perception and storytelling. Um... Crumb goes on to summarize that these fairy tales are worth analyzing because today's women's or today's women writers are directly confronting the stifling brand of femininity they proliferated. It's not a foolproof barometer for censorship, but a side-by-side comparison of the Grimm's two collections is often used by academics to determine which perspectives, scenes, and bits of dialogue were valued and which are more likely to be axed out from the original tales. While violence, no matter how brutal, generally made the the physical truths of womanhood including pregnancy and god forbid premarital sex did not (laughs) it's honestly like a very early version of like 80s slasher flicks absolutely (laughs) the the grim version doesn't get the perspective of women right but women are still included in the story so it kind of gets a pass you know And in this way, they do become cautionary tales for women because, God forbid, a woman should want to have the same experiences that men do. And as soon as they try, they're punished in classic fairy tales while men are applauded for acts of violence and they play the role of rescuer and like they save women from themselves or other sinister forces. It's very silly. (laughs) Wow. I loved listening to you two talk. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you're welcome you're welcome <laughs> i was just sitting here like drinking my coffee i was like i, I yes keep going i love this conversation <laughs> i have nothing to add <laughs> like y'all good i'll just sit here and sip my coffee <laughs> well thank you so much for that discussion that was a pretty amazing look at misogyny and fairy tales and how this works with this film um i want to take like a turn here and talk about something a little bit different um we mentioned earlier that this was sort of gretel's journey from maiden to mother to crone 
Mm-hmm. And this also sort of reminds me of Von Gennep's um, Rites of Passage. And so this next topic is about rites of passage and also shamanic initiations. So according to Franco Bejarano in their essay entitled Shamanic Initiations, a hidden theme within the fairy tale of Hansel and Gretel, quote, while the story is often regarded as symbolizing a rite of passage, there are underlying elements that mimic the universal concept of shamanic initiations. To say that by defeating the witch, one becomes a witch would be a paradox, especially in the genre of fairy tales that often demonizes witches. However... Given the ambiguity attributed to folk tales and their controversial pagan origins, often suppressed by Abrahamic religions, it is no surprise such elements are present. Unquote. This is pretty amazing to me because that is exactly what happens in the film. I feel like more so than the original fairy tale. In the original fairy tale, Gretel kills the witch by pushing her into the oven, uh, but she flees with Hansel, and they go back to their father. And here in the film, she kills the witch, but she remains at the witch's house and takes her place. So this, like, is completing her initiation. Bejarano says, like, it could be, like, a paradox, but, like, if you take all of that religious stuff out of it, it's not, technically. Mm -hmm. And this also reminds me of Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. Like, Bejarano continues and says, quote, the experience of isolation happens when the shaman-to-be reaches a specific age, usually seven or older, and an older member of the shamanic society appears and begins their training. This clearly illustrated in Hansel and Gretel's abandonment in the forest, the place where wicked witches lurk, unquote. And I want to go back to Dorothy because, like, at the beginning of The Wizard of Oz, Dorothy kills a witch, uh, accidentally, mind you, but she does, and she is called a good witch by the people of, of, of Oz. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so she, by killing a witch, becomes a witch. Now, going back to what Mejorano says, Hansel and Gretel are abandoned in the forest, and this is where the witches lurk. Like, they are basically put into danger. And like I said, this happens in the film as well as the OG fairy tale. Now, shamans also use psychedelics in their rituals, and I found an article by Don Jose Campos who says, quote, in some areas... There are purported brujos, which is Spanish for witches, who masquerade as shamans, as real shamans, I should say, and who entice tourists to drink ayahuasca in their presence. Shamans believe one of the purposes for this is to steal one's energy and or power, of which they believe every person has a limited stockpile, unquote. Ugh, so... Did Holda plant the mushrooms to trap the tired and hungry children so that she could capture their energy? Or is it one of the things that, like, is it, did she plant them and that's what happened? Or did they occur naturally as kind of like a area effect because she's there? Mm -hmm. I don't know. But if we look at these mushrooms like ayahuasca, is she using it as something that she's going to, like, use to kind of make the kids trip out so that she can steal 
to steal their energy. I mean, she she brings they have they find her house after they eat them, which hey, is kiddos. interesting. Do you want some hallucinogens? <laughs> yeah, I've got Do a good kids time for want you. Some drugs. <laughs> <laughs> Hansel, hell yeah. Do you want to trip some balls in my woods? Because it's a good time. We'll give you the real college experience. I got the good shit right down here. (laughs) Yes. So anyway, Bejarano says, quote, It is said that a person destined to be a shaman does not need to seek to be initiated. The initiator will find them and they will be called. Then... The psychic battle begins with hallucinations created by exhaustion, a deep sense of enlightenment, or the power of the Peruvian Amazonian shamans. The psychoactive efforts of the ayahuasca plant, the initiate must fight another shaman or a psychic entity. (laughs) Gretel, in particular, seems to be the witch's main apprentice, unquote. And remember... Bejarano is talking about the original story. And mm-hmm. so it's very like if I mean, if you take out that, it's very clearly talking about like Gretel training to become a witch. Like in the original story, the witch is making Gretel do chores and all that stuff. And obviously, like she plans on eating the brother. Mm-hmm. But she doesn't, as far as I remember from the original story, she doesn't plan on eating Gretel. I think eventually she does try to kill her by throwing her in the oven and Gretel tricks her. Yeah, Mm. there's a couple different versions. Um, She's definitely planning on eating Hansel because he was in a cage being plumped up and Gretel was essentially being used as a household servant to to clean and and to to work the house. And the witch was just sitting back, just throwing cakes at at Hansel in a cage. Um, But yeah, I just, I I love that envisionment of like, no, I'll I'll teach my wage so we can have like a cage match in the woods around the mushrooms. That's that's a wizard's duel. A wizard's duel. (laughs) I mean, and that's what, and and that's kind of what happens in the, in the movie. Not, Not even so much in the original fairy tale, which this author is talking about. Like this is, there is a witch's duel and the film and mm-hmm. Gretel wins and she becomes a shaman basically <laughs> at the end of the film she has a psychic battle with Holda and what's interesting is that she has a psychic battle with Holda as the younger version of herself yeah which is also interesting she's not fighting like an old woman she's fighting a young very beautiful woman who seems very healthy and is ready to kill. And uh, I think that it's, it was an interesting choice that she appeared as a young woman to Gretel. And they had this, this psychic battle like that, rather than Holda being like her older image, like her older self. You know what it kind of reminds me of? I only just thought of this, but um, an Ouroboros, which is the the snake eating its tail. Yes. Which mm-hmm. is also a symbol of, of magic, specifically um, alchemy, but it's also interpreted as a symbol for renewal of life, death, and rebirth over and over again. Mm-hmm, right. And the idea that um, Gretel is the the new witch by defeating the old witch, and the cycle keeps on going. I d- that that 
image just popped in my head. I was like, that's strangely appropriate to this whole yes. thing. Yes. And I think it's also really interesting that Holda chose to be her younger self in this battle. Mm-hmm. It's almost like she's kind of making up for it. Mm-hmm. Like she mm-hmm. knows that she's fighting a young witch. And so she she kind of tries to like give this um it almost is like a trick to trick Gretel into thinking maybe she can't win. Again, this is really interesting because it's like pitting women against each other as well. Like this yeah. kind of idea of like, I have to defeat you in order to become you. Or consume right? you. Or, or consume just, yeah, you. Yeah. Take, yeah. take what is yours into myself. Right. And so the fact that Holda is her younger self during this battle is, like I said, like it's almost like she's trying to make up for her her age, like this mm-hmm. internal misogyny that the only way she can beat Gretel is if she is also young. Yeah, mm-hmm. as if there's some more power in being a maiden than being a crone. Yes, which is mm-hmm. not the case. Each no. stage is equally powerful, but for different reasons. Right. And that is Holda's downfall. Oof. She doesn't understand that. So silly Holda. Oh, silly Holda. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Wow. So let's get into our final thought, which is rewriting fairy tales. So when this film came out, a lot of mouth breathers got mad <laughs> at the fact <laughs> that the title was changed from Hansel and Gretel to Gretel and Hansel. And honestly, I kind of wish it was just called Gretel. Get Hansel's name out of that title. It's useless. Yeah. Gretel, the Rambo of Grimm, this time she'll plump you up. Oh my <laughs> god. <laughs> but yeah, like people were really unnecessarily upset by this, and oh I couldn't believe like they like would make a whole like they were like so upset and they were like, this is a woke feminist propaganda film. <laughs> And I'm like, what? (laughs) And like, not, I don't think they realized that this story itself, like we mentioned earlier, was changed by the Grimm brothers. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not even the original story in the first place. Like, not even remotely. No. And then the article Rethinking Fairy Tales as Feminist Fables is Rescuing Them, Not Ruining Them by Rihanna Lucy Coslet. They talk about how there has been a resurgence of feminist fables for children and teens, particularly by authors Mallory Blackman, Rebecca Solnit, Jeanette Winterson, and Camilla Shamais. Now, there's always been fairy tales for adults, right? So hello, Angela Carter. Like, Angela (laughs) Carter's fairy tales are the shit. Um, But I feel like Gretel and Hansel is different. I think, like we mentioned earlier, this is for teens. Like, Oz Perkins said, like, I made this PG-13 for children, basically. Mm -hmm. Like, he easily could have made this rated R, and he didn't. And um, Coslet says, quote, frothing traditionalists may say... (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Wow. Frothing traditionalists may say that such stories are indoctrinating children, but really fairy tales have always indoctrinated children through princess culture. Though princess culture has been justly critiqued, Disney has come on leaps and bounds in the intervening years and films such as Shrek have reinvented the medium. What these books and others like them teach us is that there is no definite version of any myth, legend, or story. 
think Sleeping Beauty is kissed awake by the prince. In other versions, she is raped and gives birth while unconscious. And that's before you get to the attempted cannibalism later. Good stuff. Oh, yeah. As Winterson writes in her afterward for her book, these are stories told by told mouth by mouth long before they were written down. But even in writing, they shot, but even in the writing, they shot away, appearing again in a different place in time, recognizable, but new, unquote. And the cultural historian Marina Warner, who has written much on fairy tales and whose book From the Beast to the Blonde is a feminist classic, notes that they transcend borders. No frontier, she writes, can keep a good story from roaming. And as they roam, their cultural meanings twist and shift, unquote. I love this. Mm -hmm. Um, Cross-cultural archetypes exist for a very distinct reason. And it's because good stories akin to pillars of of human experience are timeless and even if the details change from culture to culture or from telling to telling the root and substance of the story pretty much stays the same right i think that every culture has fairy tales (laughs) and depending on what you believe every religion can be tied to this as well like we can see many similarities across the board when comparing religions to one another and many of them are structured the same just like fairy tales and they serve a higher purpose to tell us about ourselves and our origins and to protect us to write history and give us social roles and i think for a lot of women across many different cultures especially where education is seen as like a forbidden fruit for women who never learn to read or write oral storytelling helps women pass down traditions and lessons to one another And until the Brothers Grimm started changing up these oral stories, I'm sure they served a purpose in helping to empower women. Yeah, and I just want to mention real quick, um, everyone who is listening right now needs to read Women Who Run With Wolves. Yes. Um, Because that book is all about how fairy tales empower women. Mm -hmm. And it talks about the wild woman archetype uh in particular and it's very good and um uh kate uh you have a great quote from an article um i would like you to end this episode on that quote because um i think it really sums up well how this retelling of gretel and hansel or hansel and gretel the retelling called gretel and hansel is important and uh yeah yeah it's really good. <laughs> so in the uh, the article, The Witches Are Coming, The Unexpected Magic of Gretel and Hansel, Lauren Jackson writes, Gretel ultimately becomes a woman with no home. Here, the film could have taken the fairy tale way out by giving us answers, clear lines, and neon signs above characters' heads saying good or bad. But it doesn't. Wrapped up in the trappings of a fairy tale, it gives us the antithesis of a fairy tale ending. It leaves us with uncertainty, plenty of questions about how we view women and power and more than a little discomfort, cannibalism aside. That (laughs) discomfort is what's radical, what's more feminist than any all-female cast, because it doesn't just hold a mirror up to gender politics. It smashes the whole goddamn thing. Awesome. Ooh. (laughs) Yeah. I love it. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Good Morning, Nancy. Um, I'm just going to say I think that this recording was much better than the first one. (laughs) Oh, good. (laughs) I agree. 
I, you know, obviously, like, sound-wise, it's better. But yeah. um, con- content-wise, I think it was a lot better. We added a few more things that we didn't from the last episode. Uh, so I, I'm glad we redid this for other reasons. <laughs> yes. Okay. So let's talk about some good things that have happened lately. Uh, let's put some sugar cubes in our coffee. Uh, I guess I'll go first. I... Oh, someone's a car just drove by. <laughs> yeah, that's my apartment. Oh, okay. So. It's okay. I just heard it. I was like, Dang Whoa. it, Abby. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, so um, I am about to get my second dose for the vaccine, which is super yay. exciting. Uh, I also hired a babysitter. Oh, and yay. that has been fucking awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I am so glad I did that. I have been getting so much work done. I have been (laughs) reading so much more. I feel like I haven't read a book in 500 years. So Mm -hmm. it has been great, um, especially since my son is going through a very clingy stage right now. Um, So being able to pass him off to somebody else and being able to get shit done uh, has been awesome. So that is my happy, happy sugar cube. Yay. Yay. Okay, Kate, how about you? Oh my goodness. So I got my first dose of the vaccine on Thursday, nice. which is very exciting. Um, and my husband's getting one on Monday, which is very, also very exciting. Um, I've been working a lot in the garden uh, this year and my uh, plants have just started to sprout and we're about to relocate them out this weekend. And I'm really excited that, about that because I usually have a brown thumb and can't grow anything. So the fact that I have something successfully growing and doing well makes me really, really, really happy. So it's um it's been going well and my my son's doing good. He's he's very strong and climbing everything, which is both terrifying and kind of amazing. I'll turn around and he's like standing on the table, look like hey. What's up? Uh, <laughs> I was like, uh, okay, we're getting down now. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> Which is yeah, it's it's terrifying, but it's also kind of nice to see him getting getting stronger and and more confident. And you know, it's 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 fun to see him grow, but it's also you know making me gray drastically. <laughs> yes, I love how you you said some really nice things about your son, and I was like, I got to pass mine off to somebody else. <laughs> Honestly, I am so jealous. We got to do that sometime soon because at the end of the day, I'm like, I need wine. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Abby, how are you? How's everything going? Oh, man. Well, everything is going pretty great. I got my I'm fully vaccinated now. Yes. Which is incredible. Um, uh, Let's see what else. I did my glucose test for my pregnancy. And passed with flying colors. The oh, nurses were like, good. you're so healthy. It's so great. <laughs> like, oh, good. Kate oh, and I good. did not pass the first no. time. Oh, <laughs> we, we very much failed it. <laughs> oh, no. So good for you. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I'm really glad that I didn't have to go back. Oh, it, but, I'm so um, happy for you, truly. Same. Yeah. Yeah. So everything is good. Oh, good. I'm so glad you are so healthy and your baby is coming pretty soon. Oh my God. I think I have like, um, like 65 more days. Oh my God. God. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Abby. Oh, I'm so excited for you though. Me too. I'm pretty pumped. I can't wait to meet him. I'm like, ah, ah, I can't wait, but I can. (laughs) Relatable. Yeah. 
<sighs> all right. Well, thank you all so much for listening to this episode. And thank you all so much for being so patient with us so that we would re-record it. I hope that it was worth the wait. I think it was, to be honest. I think so, too. Yeah. All right. Well, please, please consider becoming a patron. Abby and I work really hard on this show without any help from researchers or editors and obviously from sound people. Um, <laughs> so if you'd like to help us out, <laughs> we would appreciate your support at patreon.com slash goodmorningnancy. And if Patreon isn't your deal, and that's okay, you can also show us your financial support by checking out our merch shop. We've got coffee mugs, sweatshirts, t-shirts, and more. Head on over to goodmorningnancy.com slash merch and click the shirt icon and that will take you to our shop. Yes, and we know times are tough right now, so a free way to help the show is by following us on social media. Facebook at Good Morning Nancy, Twitter at Good Morning Nan, and Instagram at Good Morning Nancy Podcast. Don't forget to also tell a friend and spread the word about our show, please. Yes, please. And if you have iTunes, please uh, write us a five-star review. That really helps other people find our show as well. And don't forget, Black lives still matter and trans lives still matter. So check out our show notes on how you can help out. We love you all to death. Have a good morning. Bye.